Hi listeners, I'm Laurie. I'm Phil. And welcome back to what we've been watching. I'm not really keeping an episode count on this, Phil. Do you think we need to? It's just ongoing, isn't it? Ongoingly looking at four films, old and new, mostly old. Yes. And some classics, some not so classic. Yeah, that's right. Well, we hopefully some of them at least enjoyable so that you've got some good recommendations for the weekend ahead. Phil, what are your two movies this week? This week, well, actually, I need to say... I kind of want to address a film that you've already spoken about. Now, oh, really? I don't know if that's allowed or not. Well, let's do that after we've teased the actual movies we're going to review. Okay, so the two films that I definitely am going to speak about this week are Mission Impossible 4, Ghost Protocol, and also King Kong, Peter Jackson's King Kong from 2005. Nice. I'm going to be doing I Saw the Light, which sees Tom Hiddleston star in a dramatised biopic of the life of Hank Williams, country music star. And I'm also going to do The Fighter, which is another biopic starring Mark Wahlberg and Christian Bale as Dickie and Mickey. <laughs> Dickie and Mickey. <laughs> Sounds like a cartoon, but it does sound like <laughs> we'll a cartoon. come back to that. So what's this thing you want to bring up, Phil? Well, it's kind of a controversial film in our family, it seems. This is The Age of Adeline, starring Blake Lively and Harrison Ford. Oh, right. And you have very negatively reviewed it. Yes, we've done that on what we've been watching before. I see what you're doing here, Phil. Should I just give a really quick recap of my thoughts? And then if you've you've got anything to add, you can speedily (laughs) add it. Yeah, let's Uh, hear what you said. Age of Adeline is about a woman who stops ageing in the 1920s or something like that. And Blake Lively plays her. And then she ends up going on some boring romances uh, with a guy out of Game of Thrones um, (laughs) and also Nashville, if you've seen that TV show. And it's boring. I think it's really dreary. I don't rate Blake Lively's performance. Harrison Ford turns up and is the best thing in the film. He manages to make it seem like it's kind of emotional and believable. But ultimately, it's a fairly tedious relationship movie in my book. Well, I think... I agree with some of the things you said. I would completely disagree on certain things you said. Though. Well, hurry up then. Come Number on, one come on. being Blake Lively's fantastic. You love, love her, so that doesn't she's count. She's great. You're she's blinded, fantastic. man. As she's... Eddie Murphy and I Spy would say, you're booty blinded. <laughs> <laughs> no, she is beautiful and she's stunning. But I think she does a really good job in this film. And I think she is very charming and she suits the, the role, in fact, because she's full of grace and charm. I think the main fault of the film is, in fact, her love interest, the guy from Game of Thrones, Dario Naharis, whatever his actor's name is, don't care because he's boring and he is not good enough for Blake Lively. That's where the film falls down. Do you think you should have been cast in that role? Well, I wouldn't have objected. But I think really that is where the film doesn't work because of that casting. But everything else is working well. I think it's got a good look to it. It's got a really nice little twisty thing, which I won't spoil. And I think it uses the device of her being an ageless woman and having to watch her daughter grow up and become an old lady and the tension that that provides, having to avoid living her life as normal and the, the strain and stress of that. And then having a past catch up with her and all those sorts of things. This is a good sort of movie. <laughs> this is a good uh, all classic movie. All your positives movie. here centre around Blake Lively. And I think I can't, you know, ignore the fact that you love her. So I think when well, no, you made I the point clear, course, I, can I, you give your grade? I would give it a B. I really enjoyed it. And I think you're too harsh on it. You're blinded by... I don't know what you're blinded by, but you're blind. I think a lot of people would agree with me. And listeners, the only thing for it is to watch it yourselves and let us know who is right. Which side of the fence do you sit on? Laurie's infinitely more refined, (laughs) better cut grass side? Or Phil's rougher in love with Blake Lively? You probably moan, you know, an image of her face into your lawn kind of side. I'm also in love in a kind of platonic way uh, with Harrison Ford. I think he's great in that movie as well. He's good in that film. Okay, right. Um, We're going to jump in with our first movie review. And actually halfway through the episode, we're going to cut in with some listeners the emails because some of you have been in touch this week so listen out for your email there but otherwise shall i get started first this week yeah so you start with the fighter why don't i do that yeah the fighter 
He's my younger brother. You gotta help oh, me God. finish this. Taught him everything he knows. You don't want to see where this fight is headed. Turn it over. Bam. I'm still his trainer. I have a fight next week. And after I win, I'm gonna start making good money so you can live me more days, okay? Good luck, Daddy. Don't hold your breath, Casey. Bye, baby. You pave streets, right? Yeah, I do. And I'm a fighter. I heard you were a stepping stone. Oh, I mean, I had a few tough fights, but the next fight's gonna show who I am. Yeah, and he's gonna lose that one, too. So move that sugar ass and give hey. him a hey. Don't disrespect her. Mickey Ward is 31 years old. He's here because he needs the money. Look at the size of that guy. He's got 20 pounds on me, Dickie. You don't fight, nobody gets paid. I'm quitting, Shelly. I'm done fighting. I don't need it anymore. It's sad that you let them take it away from you. I was embarrassed. I told everybody I was going to win that fight and get back on track. I'm sick of being a disappointment. Look, Mick, nobody's got heart like you. You're a very talented fighter. I want to give you a real shot. Make one last run at this thing before it's too late. What about my brother? He's taught me everything I know. I can't do it without him. With all due respect, he's too much trouble. Dickie, get on the ground right now! He's a fighter! Break his hand! Mick, I was doing it for you. You did right? it for me? Mama, what, yes? Do me a I'll favor, don't get knocked up for me uh, no more, okay? For a title shot? Not a stepping stone anymore. He's using you. You can't be me. You had a hard enough time being you, and that's why you're in here. We're gonna train, they gotta go. Why am I the problem? I'm his blood, I'm his family. You're crazy. I'm the one fighting. Not you, not you, and not you. This is my shot at the title. I won't get another one after this. Mickey has a chance to do something that I never did, and he needs me. Okay. I'll see you in Mickey's corner. This is your time. I have my time in my blue. You don't have to. You'll make it wide. You'll make it wide. Yeah, there we go. A serious business. This is the story of Mickey Ward, who is a famous American welterweight boxer. You know, I'm not reading that, Phil. I knew that already about mm-hmm. the sport. Yeah. And he's very well known. And in many ways, the story of his early life is quite equally well known. This story centers around how he began the meteoric career that was going to make him an international name. And it is sort of begins with his family. His older half-brother, Dickie Eklund, is Christian Bale in the movie. And he was actually a terrific boxer in his prime as well. Famously, he went toe-to-toe with Sugar Ray Leonard and claims to have knocked him down. Although other people dispute that and say, no, Sugar Ray slipped. And the official match commentary said that he slipped as well. Dickie has sort of... In his later life, he's in his late 30s and he's fallen off the sort of boxing wagon. He's started getting into drugs and it's a bit of a slacker. There are quite a few scenes of him just being sort of chastened by his relatives in quite an embarrassing way. But he nevertheless has great instincts. So he's kind of Mickey's unofficial trainer as well. And it's all about the relationship that these two have. As Dickie's career continues to crumble and slide, Mickey's career is sort of fledgling, could rise, could even exceed the achievements of his older brother but because his older brother was there first he's such a legend in their small town his family has such a love for Dickie the older brother it's all suddenly these family ties start emerging and very quickly tensions come to the fore there's lots of arguments there's lots of problems Uh, there's run-ins with the police Uh, there's terrible incidents in his life and Mickey's career looks like it could be over well before it began. 
What about the director? Because I think you told me off air just before we started, it was David O. Russell, which I could not believe. Yeah, absolutely. And this is like you, Phil. I didn't go into this film already knowing it was David O. Russell. I'd already heard about the film. It picked up Academy Award wins for Christian Bale as supporting actor and Melissa Leo uh, as uh, Dickie and Mickey's mother. But I didn't realise it was David O. Russell. But now that I do, it kind of makes sense. Do you remember seeing that film Joy starring Jennifer Lawrence, Phil? Yeah, and also he was director of the American Hustle film, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. He seems to have a bit of a love for this kind of ragtag crews who are at each other's throats, but also trying to achieve big things at the same time. And I have to admit, Joy especially was really in my mind as I saw this, because the way that he films sort of lower economic, socioeconomic bracket families and their speech patterns and hang-ups and sort of style of living, all that kind of stuff, is really quite compellingly put together in quite a messy way. Do you remember feeling that way about Joy, Phil? Yeah, it's engaging, but not pretty. Exactly. And but at the same time, there's the sort of messy, engaging style of it means it, it's quite, it feels quite authentic, although nothing could be less authentic than Amy Adams, uh, who plays Mickey's girlfriend, you know, a stunning, wealthy actress, Mark Wahlberg, uh, Christian Bale, all pretending to be these <laughs> slightly down-their-luck types. I mean, it's ridiculous. But the performances and the direction, I think, combine so that it just feels wonderful to watch. That's acting, Laurie. That's acting. Do you, you think know? it is? Yeah. Well, I've not heard of that before, right? You grease yeah. your face up or whatever. You convince them you're from the streets. <laughs> I thought this film was a real joy to watch. It made me super excited to see the outcomes of the fights that are in play. I cared a lot about each of the characters. I think Christian Bale is really magnificent as this guy Dickie, who is, in terms of the facts of his life, he's quite an unsympathetic guy. But he has such a kind of overbearing, fast-talking charm and an obvious love for his family. You just find yourself warming to him, even though he makes enemies out of basically everybody that he meets. And similarly, I, I really enjoyed seeing Mark Wahlberg, although technically the lead actor, playing a sort of, not a very leady lead role. He's almost a a supporting actor along with Christian Bale. They share a lot of the screen time. And I think Mark Wahlberg really suits playing someone who is not the main focus because his natural sort of bravado isn't in the spotlight. Instead, you get to see him play a guy who's a bit wimpy at certain points, a bit sorry for himself. He certainly seems to be at home in the ensemble sort of cast. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, he was in Boogie Nights, wasn't he? And he was also in... The Departed, and I think he's fantastic in The Departed, even though it's quite a small role. He is one of the most memorable characters, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he, he does a terrific job here. He's a good guy to hang the film off. And he looks like the plucky underdog who could just achieve great things if given the right opportunity. Is this the film where Christian Bale lost like 30, 40 pounds or something like that? Well, I think, are you thinking of the um, the machinist or the machinist? I mean, that's the one where he's that's unhealthily skinny, but I think he lost a lot of weight for this one as well. No, he? definitely he did. And, you know, that is all part of his performance. The guy is a chameleon. It's no surprise that he won the Academy Award. Not only do you believe he's this fast this fast-talking guy and that it's really coming out of him. But yeah, his physical appearance is so radically different. I think he's even sort of artificially changed his hairline is the impression I get as well. So that he looks like an ex-big guy who's, you know, out of his prime. It's a really terrific performance from Bale. So there's certainly a lot to love about this film. I think it's not necessarily, the style is not necessarily going to appeal to everyone because it does have that messiness. You know, lots of confusing scenes where there's loads of people in the shot all talking over each other. The camera kind of whirs around between them and it feels very sort of high strung. There's something really enjoyable about that. It's almost a half sort of faux documentary feel about it. 
but it's also it's a bit of an assault on the senses it's certainly not one to sit back and relax with and that you know that's reinforced by the occasional rock songs that come in and there's a lot of energy to the production but actually those are all things i really like and associate with david o russell but there are some other things which are less good about it which are that for me the overall pacing was a little bit slow I felt like David O. Russell was fascinated with the minutiae of these guys' daily lives and their relationships and wanted to explore every little high and low to the fullest extent possible, putting words in lots of people's mouths and giving a lot of time to it. But it just meant that the pace is really random. Like there are moments of extreme sort of story points all colliding and action. And then there's incredibly slow moments where people are just talking and kind of going between each other. And it's not totally clear what the stakes are. How are the fights? The fights are, well, there are not that many sort of proper fights, but the one right at the end is brilliant. Yeah, I was really rooting for it. And you think it's well directed as well? Well, I think it's uniquely directed. I think that that sort of choppy pace thing is part of what David Russell is about. We thought the same thing in Joy, so I don't think you can get away from it. It's a unique sort of style. I liked it. I don't think it's going to appeal to everyone, though. What sort of grade would you give it then? I would give it a B plus. I thought it was a pretty solid movie. And it was, you know, nominated for a best picture as well. So a lot of people are, are on board with that one. Shall I do my one then? Yeah, let's move on. What are you going to do? Well, do you want me to do King Kong or Mission Impossible? Your call. I'm thinking get the Kong out of the way. Let's do King Kong. And lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty. And beauty stayed his hand. And from that day forward, he was as one dead. So you are ready for this voyage, Miss Darrow? Sure. Nervous? Nervous? No. Should I be? Imagine, if you will, an uncharted island. Thought to exist only in myth. Wall! There's a wall ahead! That's where I'll shoot my picture. It's deserted. Of course it's deserted. Places are ruined. They've taken in! Find her! If you haven't found her in 24 hours, there'll be nothing left to find. No! And even the trailer's long and boring. <laughs> It's slightly, yeah, I have to admit, watching the trailer as well, listeners, some of those effects are looking pretty dated. You're going to have to edit down that trailer, I think, for listeners' sake. Yeah, I think you're right, Phil. So here we go, King Kong. This is Peter Jackson's passion project. Did you know that Peter Jackson absolutely loves the original King Kong? He says it's one of the best films of all time. No, actually, I was not aware of that. And this is the first film that he did after Lord of the Rings and all that mega success he got from that. And... It's weird how much Peter Jackson is kind of copying George Lucas. Do you think? I really think he is because he's had extraordinary success with a a trilogy and 
one of the most successful trilogies you could ever have in terms of money and box office and critical acclaim, all that sort of jazz, much like Star Wars. And it seems to be that studios were then like, this guy knows exactly what to do. He's an absolute gold mine. Let's give him all the money he ever wants to do whatever he wants, Just whenever money, he wants. Full Just stop. <laughs> all the money. Yeah. He, so he gets any project he wants to do, he seems to get greenlit. And it seems to be that he has chosen to make his own version of the film that influenced him so much when he was a, a child. That's just sort of a risky thing to do. You don't want to be responsible for killing your own dreams. No, but I mean, clearly he, he, he is visualising the things which he's been imagining ever since he was sort of 11 years old, uh, playing with these toys, imagining the bits. Because I don't know if you've ever seen the original King Kong. There's black and white one. Yeah, the special effects are not very good. There's a very hilarious bit where King Kong sort of bounces off a sky skyscraper and it's just clearly a doll, sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. raggedy. And yet... <laughs> good times in cinema, man. I love that stuff. <laughs> and it's great. King Kong has its place in cinema. But actually, I think this film is totally unnecessary and I kind of don't really get it. I don't really get why audiences would be that excited to see a giant ape on screen. What's so special about King Kong? That's the whole question I had for the entirety of this film. Because in this film, they go off to Skull Island. There's this, a ragtag team of random people on this boat, all of them whom are big time celebrity actors and everything like that. Even the like bit parts are famous people. They all go to Skull Island where they find dinosaurs, like loads of dinosaurs, and they're like, <laughs> Let's get the giant monkey. I want the giant monkey. <laughs> that is a very good point. Why? Like, no interest in the T-Rex, the extinct animal that nobody's seen ever. They're like, people want to see a giant monkey. <laughs> they needed John Hammond on that team, man. He would have been, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He'd be on it like a car bonnet. Unfortunately, this film is just a big mess. It's too long. It's overblown. It's indulgent. That is the word that really, I think sums it up to a T. It is a man making his dreams when he was a teenager real and with a multi-million dollar budget. And what you have is just this slow, boring, dull movie that goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. Because Jack Black, is he the lead technically? Jack Black plays the film producer. He's the guy who's saying, let's go to Skull Island. Let's let's film. This will be where I'll film my movie. But he doesn't really have a story. He's just sort of, like, let's go. Naomi Watts, who plays the girl in it, she's the lead actress. The main, uh, I'd say the main protagonist of the film is the girl, Naomi Watts, okay. who gets taken away by King Kong. And King Kong seems to have a fascination with her because she's so beautiful. <laughs> And it's kind of about King Kong just being in love with this girl and all the the things that happen as they try and rescue her from him. One sequence in particular is fantastic and it is undeniable. And you can think, actually, this is a talented filmmaker having this dream of uh, of visualising a scene which wasn't very good in the original and make it even bigger and better. And that's when King Kong fights some T-Rexes. It's so wonderfully staged. It's really creative. There's an absolutely epic bit where King Kong rips apart the jaws of a T-Rex. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. And that sequence is is great. It's a really exciting sequence. It's when the movie finally feels like it's it's kicking up to to start something. It's when the film has a bit of spectacle, but it's so long into the film. It's sort of an hour and a half into the film that you just don't care anymore. And it just seems to be aimless. It seems to have no purpose because you spend about an hour setting up basically the simplest plot ever. Some guys have left to try and film something. That's it. And they spend so long setting up each individual part of it. You've got Colin Hanks as like the film film producer's buddy and assistant. You've got Billy Elliot, I forget his name, Jamie Bell as a, a sort of shipmate thing. And Adrian Brody for some reason is in there as well. It's just 
I don't know really what they were thinking and each sequence is too long. It just needs to be snappier, it needs to be punchier, it needs to get to that iconic conclusion of King Kong and a skyscraper so, much sooner. What do we think about this? Do you think this means Peter Jackson is not that great a director or do you think it is that he has so much clout and so much success that the editors are too afraid to you know, really stick their hand in and say, no, I know my job, we've got to cut that shorter? I think what's interesting about filmmakers in general is often they are marked by how they overcome adversity and when they run out of money, they have to put the film first. They can't indulge themselves. They kill off those unnecessary beats, those unnecessary indulgences to make sure the film gets made. When you have unlimited funds and money and everyone's saying you're great, you're brilliant, actually it means that you don't really examine your work. I don't think you're critical enough of your own work and you don't really put the film ahead of the, the little little moments that you love. And this film is full of little moments that don't need to be there. I think this film is a mess. It's always on ITV2. Save, say of that what you will. That's true. And I don't think, I, I can't face watching it all over again. So for people, I think a lot of people will have seen this because when it came out at the cinema, it was a It was a, a huge deal. movie, wasn't it? Yeah, and the fact that it was Peter Jackson was huge as well. If anyone hasn't seen it, is it worth, you know, as a kind of educational experience dipping into? I'm going to say no. I don't okay. think it's worth the time. The amount of time you have to invest just to watch it, it isn't worth it. There's a few scenes, just YouTube them. Yeah, yeah. And how does it make you feel about Skull Island? It makes me not interested in it whatsoever. <laughs> I don't think, I, as I say, what's the deal with King Kong? Why I'm is sorry, it so great? Listen, Skull Island is an upcoming, I think it's even supposed to be a sequel, isn't it? It's sort of a modern day sequel. They're like yeah. an army crew go to Skull Island or something like that. <laughs> Very Great weird. start. Yeah. It doesn't make me interested at all. I just don't get what the fascination is with King Kong. Why is he so special? What's the grade, man? I'm going to give it a C. How about that? Really low. Let us take a break and let's do a couple of emails. Why not? Sounds good. Okay, just a couple of things you guys have been in touch about. Uh, thank you. I know some of you listen to our other show and occasionally email us there and include your what we've been watching thoughts on those emails. Uh, but thank you to those who've emailed specifically about what we've been watching. We're reading those out now. So firstly from Gavin, who says, Dear Flory, P-H-L-A-U-R-E. Nice combo. I must lament the what have we been watching jingle. I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Gavin. That's tough, isn't it? He says, The sad demise of what is perhaps the finest piece of podcast jinglery, jinglery <laughs> has hit me hard, I'll not deny. But I've chosen to follow the theme of Passengers, a film you reviewed recently is at the cinema, and make the most of my new circumstances by reappropriating it to other areas of life. For instance, when selecting items from the wardrobe in the morning, I've begun singing... This is what I'm wearing today <laughs> to Woo! the very same tune. Uh, carry on podding, Gavin. Well, uh, listeners, that may mean nothing at all to you. We used to have a jingle for what we've been watching that came on on the regular podcast and it went uh, a little something like this. What have we been watching this week? Woo! Thanks very much, Phil. Is that so, totally out of tune? I don't have the jingles. Uh, well, this is Go the thing. We, we, what we, I put the jingles in in post, so we just guess the pitch each time. <laughs> and I think it made a lot of sense as kind of part of the whole 8-bit uh, tuny ensemble in Super Baby Bros in Movie Land. What we've been watching doesn't really have any jingles, so I thought it'd be weird to bring it in. But listeners, now's your chance. If you loved all of that, make Gavin's dreams come true and let's reinstate the jingle. Could we just have the jingle without me singing over it as well? And then so that people could say, I like the jingle, don't like the singing. Okay, here's your, here's your last chance. And then it lives or it dies. Here it is. 
Thanks, Gavin. Okay, and another one here from Johnny Valentine. Hi, Super Belly Bros. I have an email about some of your recent what you've been watching things. Really enjoyed your festive fun Christmas movie guide, even though we actually listened to it uh, on the drive home after the festive period. <laughs> it was <laughs> still fun uh, listening to it as we were picking out what we'd watched instead. My wife wants to give Phil a retrospective plus one for his love of the Santa Claus. Hooray! I love that. She loves it too. Although it is slightly weird how his kid is suddenly a genius in sleigh repair. That is true. He's he's a he's a smart cookie. He he's comes a general with, whiz kid, isn't he? It's Charlie. Charlie. We watched that film. Were you there when we watched that? I don't think house? I was, no. We watched that all together. And I have to admit, I haven't seen it in a good number of years, The Santa Claus. It hasn't aged well in all respects. What it's... respects has it not aged well? <laughs> I will fight you to it. the beaches on this. We'll talk about this another time. Okay, he goes on. She would also uh, love to give Phil another two plus ones for his stuff on Les Mis and Chicago. Oh, that was last week. So that's great. Yes, exactly. Ooh. She loved Chicago and wasn't completely won over by Les Mis. I haven't seen Chicago, but Les Mis has to go down as one of the most disappointing cinematic experiences <laughs> oh, wow, okay. of my life. The major problem was I reckon I was slightly naive to what a musical actually is. I had thought Lion King, that's a musical. It's got songs in it and it's in the West End. Surely Les Mis would be like that. But I was incredibly wrong because they literally sing everything. I told you, didn't I? It's a bit of a shock. I think the marketing didn't want people to realise that it was every single well, bit is sung. I've heard some people technically refer to it as an opera because that is more traditional of opera to sing every line, even the dialogue lines, whereas musicals do, you know, they have numbers, don't they? They burst into them, but maybe this one straddles it. The penny dropped when in the opening scene they're singing Look Down and Russell Crowe just comes up and sings Hugh Jackman's prisoner number. <laughs> Two, four, six, oh, one, your time has begun. He says his heart literally sank. Uh, I spent the whole film wanting someone to talk. Music's great and there was good emotion but just could not get on board with the total singing script. Do you know the other other film that I remember thinking, oh, just somebody talk, come on. Mm. Do you know what the film is? Tell me. The Artist, you know, the silent movie Oh, film? yeah, you like, did talk, not like come that. On, just talk. You thought that was Hollywood's kind of condescending Oscar, didn't you? Yeah, I think that was that was the weakest, best film ever. Everyone's forgotten about that film. No one cares about it It anymore. was on TV again this Christmas. Nobody cares about it. <laughs> All right, let's not do that here again. Let's review that another time. Why <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, Spoiler true. for it. Okay, finally, he's got one more thing to add, and then we'll wrap, wrap up. I would love to know what your guys' most disappointing cinematic experiences ever are. And by that, I mean actual trips to the cinema, not just watching films. For me, some notable ones would be the new David Brent film, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, oh yeah, and possibly The Last Hobbit film. Though I think with that one, I've become more disappointed over time. Initially, it was a bit like a glass of milk, you know, refreshing, delicious. It was okay, but since it's been a bit left out on the side and the whole room smells a little bit like sick. (laughs) Man, that's quite a picture there, Johnny. Mm, And he'd also throw in Elf. He watched it as a kid and just didn't really get it. Maybe he was a bit young, a bit too childish, but now watching it since, his appreciation is growing for it, especially with all the friends who constantly quote it. I remember seeing Harry Potter at my friend Henry's 11-year-old birthday party. And for whatever reason, Harry Potter hadn't clicked with me or whatever. And I just remember being like, this is so rubbish. The acting's terrible. As an (laughs) 11-year-old, I don't know why, (laughs) but I was just like anti-Harry Potter the movie. That's strange. And I was really disappointed. I thought, such a joke of a film. And now I think it's kind of a nostalgic gem. It happens to us all. Well, Johnny Valentine, we're not going to answer those questions here. I think that's more Super Bailey Bros material, isn't it, Phil? I think, yeah, we'll tackle that one in the podcast, I think. So listen out for our responses to that there. But thank you so much for your email. That's great. He says, love you forever. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. Very nice. Okay, 
That's a nice little email break. Shall we get back to some movie reviews, Phil? Yes, and if you agree or disagree with us on any reviews, do email in and you can give uh, Laurie or I a plus one or a minus one. Yeah, that's right. Okay, my next movie is I Saw the Light. Let's give a rousing welcome to Mr. Hank Williams. All right, boys, let it roll. When he first came to see me, he played some songs he'd written and I offered him a contract right then and there. Most of the time, I do. Congratulations. You have a son, Mr. Williams. He don't have a real day. Not like it was for me. He's drinking like a fish tonight. Are you writing, Hank? A little poem of the Lord. Why don't you write me a poem? I might have to get to know you a little better. There's a lot of speculation about the hard lives that folk singers live. What do you mean, hard? You go out on the road and you sleep with a different woman every night. I need you with me. You think you can treat me right then? I can try. Business is tough on marriage. Marriage is tough on marriage. You're barely even here. You're barely even a father now. professional at making a mess of things. Everybody has a little darkness in them. Now I'm talking about things like anger, sorrow, shame. I show it to them. And they hear it. And they don't have to take it home. Country music, it's sincere. Man sings a sad song. He knows a sad. Okay. Well, a very stirring trailer, didn't you think, Phil? Yeah. I'm not, not what I was expecting for the Hey, Good Looking song. Oh, really? No, yeah, no. What a classic tune that is. That is a cracker, isn't it? Always makes me think of Scrubs. I know. I'm with you on that one. Listeners, Hank Williams was an incredibly big name in country music, but for a very short period of time. I'm sure lots of you will have heard of him before. If not, he's really worth checking out. But he was almost as famous for his incredible talent for songwriting as his sort of bizarre lifestyle. He was known for being an alcoholic. He was known for missing shows. He had a turbulent home life with his wife, Audrey, and he died younger than anyone expected, very sadly. So he's one of these sort of enigmatic uh, pop stars, basically, for want of a better term, who sort of burned very brightly but very fast and now we just left with his legacy. Tom Hiddleston takes up the challenge to play Hank Williams and dons a very spangly white suit, gigantic cowboy hats and even attempts to let his windpipes have a go at singing these songs. Was that him singing? <laughs> that was him singing. What did you think? Uh, really? Yeah, not for me. Not Why? for me. Didn't I just think whenever you have somebody singing along I, it sounded auto-tuned to me. That was the weird thing. Do you think it did? Yeah, it just sounded a little bit too clean, a little bit too on the money. In some ways, you if you're going to have an actor sing, I think you kind of want to hear them sort of not sing as well as the real deal. I actually didn't mind the singing, I have to admit. I heard him do an interview on uh, the BBC Five film show and he sung I Saw the Light there and I was cringing the entire time because he plays guitar and he sings, Tom Hiddleston, and it's not a singer's performance at all. They were, you know stepping over themselves to attempt to find something positive to say about it. But when I listen to him in the film, I think he does a pretty good job. And he's not that dissimilar from Hank Williams. And yet when you hear the real Hank Williams, you can hear the difference in quality. So I, I think he kind of nails it. 
Okay. Unfortunately, I think that is the only thing that's nailed in the entire film. I, one of the problems with this kind of story is that it's quite short. It's not that remarkable, except for the fact that he died quite young. And you watch as the director, Mark Abraham, he's not directed many things, this is only his second feature, attempts to wring as much drama as possible out of every moment on the screen. And in terms of the way the film is shot, with some of the sort of slow panning stuff, uh, the sort of very obviously framed set pieces in the small towns and the dark contrast. He's so obviously trying to go to uh, walk the line with Johnny, yeah. you know, Joaquin Phoenix that it becomes a bit sort of slightly cringy at how much they want you to be, you know, shocked to your core at the earthiness of this real story. It does seem like filmmakers have constantly tried to go to the biopic film, particularly musicians. And nobody's ever managed to get out of the shadow of Walk the Line. And I think that's mostly down to the fact that Johnny Cash is just really interesting. Yeah. And most other people aren't like Johnny Cash. That is not to say there aren't things to be enjoyed. I think Tom Hiddleston and Elizabeth Olsen, who is Scarlet Witch in the Avengers franchise, who plays his wife. Like her, Audrey, she's good. Yeah, I think they have fairly good chemistry because their characters are supposed to be, you know, they have edges that don't quite tessellate properly. They're constantly brushing up against each other, rubbing each other out the wrong way. And his wife, Audrey, was famous for wanting to sing with Hank. And there are some recordings that have survived her oh, singing. Right, okay. But just as famous uh, was the fact that the record executives really didn't want her to sing. <laughs> they oh. didn't like her voice, but she was desperate to sing. And so that was a sort of constant point of conflict between her and Hank. And they remain sort of distant. And then they come together at different points. And they're just, it's a very turbulent relationship. And you're given a real front row seat to it. And, you know, it's hard to really like Hank Williams after watching this film, especially when you see the way that he defeats himself. I mean, he gets this chance at the Grand Ole Opry, which is his big dream to sing on this famous country stage, be part of that uh, performing group. And he just throws it all away with a sort of self-destructive streak. And it's common among a very successful artists, so it would seem. It's sad to watch here. It's just not particularly interesting to watch here. It's, yeah, unfortunately. And what do you think of Tom Hiddleston? Well, we were chatting about this just before, Phil. We were. We were. I had to, it's hard to separate this from his performance because I think he does actually a pretty good job. The problem is Tom Hiddleston, <laughs> he's overexposed at the moment. He's been in everything and he's in too many things so that he is not invisible enough. Although I think his performance is good, I can't help seeing Tom Hiddleston there. And that was a distraction because, you know, the real Hank Williams was similar to Tom Hiddleston in the fact that they were both quite slim guys, quite tall guys but not in enough ways to really justify it. It's a bit yeah. of star casting, really. I do think he just needs to lay low a bit. Have a look, have a, have a, have a quiet year. Take five with all the money and hang out with Taylor Swift, wasn't it? No, yeah, well, I think that. that's over now. That's not our style. <laughs> I think it gets a C plus, actually. Not very enjoyable, but it did make me fascinated by Hank Williams, and he is definitely worth checking out. Maybe a little bit successful then, maybe a little bit. But that's not, not as a that's film, plus, just as a, oh, I've not heard of this guy before. All right, what have you got? I am going to round it off with Mission Impossible 4, Ghost Protocol. An hour ago, a bomb blew up the Kremlin. The president has initiated Ghost Protocol. The entire IMF has been disavowed. Now I've been ordered to take you to Washington where they will hang the Kremlin bombing on you and your team. Unless you were to escape after assaulting Brandt and me. If any one of your team is caught, they will be branded terrorists out to incite global nuclear war. So what happens now? Your mission, should you choose to accept it. 
Marco, what's the play? We all have our secrets. Don't we, Ethan? Okay, now remember, blue is glue. And when it's red? Dead. You're not gonna make it! You're not helping. So there you go. I think a lot of that was music. Do you cut out quite a lot of the music, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. I mean, we're all grooving around to it, watching Tom Cruise run and explosions happen and punches. But, you know, that doesn't really come across so much on the podcast. Oh, well, sorry about that, listeners. But I will carry on with the review. And also, I need to apologise because I'm just jumping right over Mission Impossible 2 and Mission Impossible 3. This just happens to be what I've seen. Well, so I'm going to do Mission Impossible 4. Mission Impossible 1 was only... We did that on the Super Betty Bros show, not what we've been watching, of course. Yeah, we did we, it as a cheese or wine, didn't we? Whether or not it had aged well. A whole proper breakdown because that film is awesome. Yeah, you should definitely check that out if you haven't checked it out on the podcast yet. But this film, this is directed by Brad Bird. Tom Cruise returns. You've got Jeremy Renner as this sort of new mysterious agent, Agent Brandt. And then you've also got Paula Patterson, I think it is. Uh, Paula Patton, I think, isn't it? Paula Patton, that's it. And also Simon Pegg as Benji comes in again from Mission Impossible 3. I think this film is great, man. I think it's really, really good. It's so fun. It's got a lot of energy and there's actually some really impressive set pieces in the film. I think Mission Impossible is a bit of an under-the-radar franchise and yet it's on its fifth film now. I know. And I think they're going, well, I think they're doing a sixth film soon. I wouldn't surprise me. Surely they will do. I I can't imagine they'll let that sleeping dog lie. Imagine if The Mummy becomes Mission Impossible 6. That'd be quite interesting. Anyway, I think this film is a really solid sequel to the kind of revitalised franchise with J.J. Abrams' Mission Impossible 3. I think there are some things in Mission Impossible 4 which don't quite work, which is a shame, and unfortunately I think that's mostly in the third act. But two sequences in particular that I think really, really work well. The opening in the Kremlin with Simon Pegg and Tom Cruise infiltrating it. That is good, that's true. It's very funny, it's got exactly the right sort of tone, you feel like they're in danger, and yet still they're somehow getting laughs as the technology doesn't quite work as as planned, and exactly the sort of thing which Mission Impossible should be about. And then also, the other sequence, and really it's about three or four sequences in the film, is the Burj Khalifa, where you've got Tom Cruise hanging off the side of the building, running up and down the, the, the tower on the glass... And I actually did that for real life. It wasn't CGI. It was Tom Cruise jumping and spiralling off a a cord. But around that sequence as well is a great little chase through a sandstorm. You've got an incredibly tense, well-plotted sequence with people pretending to be others uh, in two different hotel rooms. on three different levels, isn't it? Exactly. uh, And those... uh, it's a very unique thing that Mission Impossible can deliver because it's it has realised that they can do something which James Bond can't, which is have a team of agents working together. And I think this film is where it works really well. I think Mission Impossible 3 was a really good film, but it is the Tom Cruise show. Even though there are other agents around, it's all about Tom Cruise. Yeah, the other guys, true. forgettable, forget about well, them. Well, I mean, Reese Myers, you don't cast him to be a leading light, do you? No, exactly. Whereas this film, it really is an ensemble piece Jeremy Renner, surprisingly, 
has a lot of charisma actually he's I think they were trying to line him up as a replacement for Tom Cruise <laughs> and Tom Cruise is like no I'm going to no, endure no. I'm, I'm Ethan Hunt man Ethan yeah. Hunt never backs away from his exactly, challenge exactly and so Agent Brandt becomes sort of a secondary character but the way that they weave him into the narrative is quite clever and quite well done and there's a bit of nuance to it where the film really does fall down as I said is the third act the third act just doesn't doesn't really match up to the heights quite literally of the Burj Khalifa Unfortunately, it's a little bit messy, a little bit underwhelming. It's slightly contrived, if my memory serves. The and also, yeah. and as it's heading towards its conclusion, it's still trying to hit the comedy button. And actually, it doesn't need to. It's, that's when the stakes need to start rising. That's when it really needs to be threatening. I mean, the whole film is about nuclear war, potentially. A whole nuclear war being caused by a kind of mad scientist. And suddenly you've got a internet billionaire from India who's sort of trying to seduce one of the agents. It just seems a bit cheesy and a silly. <laughs> and also you've got Jeremy Renner floating on a magnet thing. Yeah, no, I slightly agree with you there, Phil. It kind of falls flat. When you consider the first Mission Impossible, it didn't have that scale of threat. What it did have was a death-defying stunt on a train with helicopters flying through tunnels. That had the tension button ratcheted right up, even though there wasn't that much at stake. No, but just to try to take the edge off of that criticism of the, the final act, there is a nice little sequence between Tom Cruise and the big bad in a car park, which is physically quite brutal that's true but overall i think this is a quality action movie it is definitely worth checking out if you haven't checked into the mission impossible franchise for a while watch it enjoy it don't don't worry about it james bond is all serious and grimy and, and kind of grumpy these days ethan hunt great fun very much in agreement with you there man i wonder how much longer tom cruise can keep that horse going i don't know he i mean if he can act and yell and if he can get some pecs going i think he'll be all right <laughs> we'll see what's your grade I'm going to give this film, I'm tempted to say for how much I enjoyed it, an A minus, but that can't be right. So I'm going to give it a B plus. Fair enough, Phil. Way to chicken out. Yeah. (laughs) Listeners, thank you so much for listening to a slightly longer episode this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you can let us know your thoughts on all those films at superbellybros at gmail.com or at superbellybros on Twitter. And remember, you can also send us films you'd love us to review, all that kind of stuff. Thank you to those who have already done that. And do be reassured, we are going to do that at some point. It's all to do with the schedules and things, isn't it, Phil? I mean, it's scheduled. Scheduled, sorry, yes. No, schedule is correct. That's correct in the British pronunciation. <laughs> uh, over the holiday period, the last couple of months been a bit uh, tricky to do that kind of thing. But we're back in a rhythm now, aren't we? Hopefully, yeah. 2017, we're right in the guts of it now, aren't we? Well said. <laughs> uh, good stuff. All right, listeners, thanks. Have a great week. And we'll be with you again next Friday. Bye-bye.